Hello and welcome to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jason Horilak, who's an experienced clinician and probiotic expert, who'll be giving us the lowdown on probiotics and prebiotics. He'll explain what the gut microbiome is and its role in relation to health, why probiotic strains are important, and what you need to be aware of when taking probiotics. You'll also learn why prebiotics are just as vital for your health as probiotics. Dr. Jason Horilak is a researcher, educator, Western herbalist and naturopathic physician with over 20 years of clinical experience. He did his PhD examining the capacity of probiotics, prebiotics and herbal medicines to modify the gastrointestinal tract microbiota and teaches worldwide on these topics. He has published extensively in these areas, including 20 textbook chapters. Dr. Horilak maintains a busy clinical practice in Hobart, Tasmania, where he consults with patients from all over the world. He is currently the Senior Lecturer in Complementary and Alternative Medicines at the University of Tasmania's College of Health and Medicine and is the Chief Research Officer at probioticadvisor.com, which offers a searchable database that enables easy, evidence-based prescribing of probiotic products and online resources for clinicians. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. The role of the gut microbiome has been in the spotlight in recent years, and more people are becoming familiar with probiotics. Prebiotics less so, but the term is now being banded around a lot more. But there does appear to be lots of conflicting information about the use of probiotics and which ones should be taken and when. Luckily, though, you're going to give us the lowdown on probiotics and prebiotics today to help our listeners better understand it. Yes, I'll do my best (laughs) to condense a lot of information, but we will do our best to do so. Yeah. Firstly, though, please can you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience as a practitioner? Yeah, I mean, I studied naturopathy in the late 1990s, and I finished my four-year Bachelor of Naturopathy course in 1999, and then I followed up doing an honors degree and then my PhD looking at the gut microbiota and, and specifically how we could use herbal medicines and prebiotics and probiotics to alter the gut ecosystem to become a much healthier state. So I've been in the gut world for for a long time, and I was very lucky to have chosen the topic that, one, I was passionate about then, and two, maintain my my absolute passion about now, 20 years later on. And through that whole journey, I've been, I've been a clinician, and then these days I you know, lecture on, the, on this topic, research on this topic, and still see patients around optimizing gastrointestinal health and the treatment of a range of, of different gastrointestinal conditions. Fantastic. And tell us about the Probiotic Advisor, which is a an amazing resource for practitioners. Yeah, like when I first started essentially teaching about the, the role of probiotics in naturopathic students back in my first year, it was probably 2000 or 2001, I started creating documents that essentially were looking at, okay, well, these, I started learning a lot about probiotics when I delved into it a lot more than what I was taught. And there was certain stuff that came out from that, and which I think we'll talk about, about different probiotic strains, having different attributes and, and therapeutic indications. You know, so we use a specific probiotic strain for this condition, a different probiotic strain to treat another condition. So I started creating documents around that for my, my students. And then over the time, as, as probiotic research you know, bloomed from you know a couple hundred papers a year to thousands of papers a year, we essentially moved away from paper and moved into a electronic database that people can now search. You know, they can search for health condition that comes up with what probiotic strains and what commercially available products contain those strains and a brief summary of the research that was done on those strains. So you can kind of navigate through different ways. Uh, so essentially trying to create a way of making evidence-based prescribing of probiotics easy and quick rather than having to do like a search of the medical literature every time you want to, you know, just use a product to treat something it's like okay now i can type in this disease condition or health condition it tells me what to prescribe and i can also go okay i I buy this product or grab this one off the shelf and i want to know what's in it and how what it's useful for i can then look it up from that that direction as well yeah so it's been a labor of love over the last 20 years (laughs) to manifest as it is now well, what a fantastic resource. And because it is a bit of a minefield because there are so many different strains and different brands. And, and I think it, it can be quite overwhelming, especially if you're not 
an expert in in gut health. Totally is, and and I think it, it's not helped because diff- all the companies go, "Ours is the best." No, ours is the best. No, ours is the best. So they're all saying that theirs is the best, and they're, they're giving certain reasons why. And I think it's important to use evidence to cut through the the health claims to work out one is good for because that the, theirs might be the best for one thing, but it's uh, unlikely to be best for everything. And there might be another brand with another strain that's better for whatever condition you're dealing with. And I think, yeah, we have to look beyond the claims made on the label or by manufacturers who are selling it and look at the, the re- research behind it. Mm-hmm. And we'll go into that in a bit more detail later because it is quite interesting about the strains because you might have, for example, rhamnosis, which is a, a strain, but there are you know, different types of rhamnosis as well, which have been researched for different things. So people might think they're buying the right one, but not necessarily it isn't the right strain for what they need. Yes, exactly. Now, before we get into probiotics, can you firstly explain what the gut microbiome is and its role in relation to one's health? Yeah, this has been an amazing journey to both be a part of, but also to watch as, you know, because my PhD was in the gut microbiota. So, you know, I've been looking, delving into this area from a research perspective from, you know, essentially late 1999, early 2000, was sort of delving into it. So you get to see where it was then and where it's at now. It's just been like huge, huge shift. And, and you go back in time, 20 odd years ago, we were talking about the microbiota being important for well, gastrointestinal health. And maybe it was we knew it was imbalanced in some gut conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. Even that was clear 20 years ago. We also knew that it was actually important for immune system function. And I think this was known within the microbiota circles, but wasn't really that widely known outside that, that we knew that we could take animals and we could give them megadoses of antibiotics and put them in little sterile boxes. And essentially their immune system would become totally dysfunctional. They would lose like 90% of their certain immune cells by wiping out their gut flora. And then we could fix that by essentially exposing them to, to feces from, from other rats that had a normal microbiome. They would get that microbiome back and all of a sudden their immune system function would normalize again. So we knew that bit too, but you know, the researchers did, but it wasn't that widely known. And we knew a little bit about, yeah, it makes some B vitamins and vitamin K, you know, and that was probably about it. And, and I think what's really shifted is our understanding of the fundamental role that this ecosystem plays in those things. Yes, but much wider thing is in terms of body functions. I, I think we'd be hard pressed finding any body system that we now know isn't influenced by the microbiota composition, you know, and. Just taking a step back, the, the microbiota is just essentially the ecosystem in, in different environments. When we're talking about the gastrointestinal microbiota, we're, we're essentially talking primarily about the ecosystem in the colon of the large intestine. And we're generally talking about the bacterial component of that. However, there's also a fungal component of the microbiome. There is a um, protozoal component of that and even a viral component as well as the bacteria. But the most research to date has been looking at the bacteria bit. So that's a section that we know the most about, even though in some ways we're still no little, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can still get a microbiome report on, on someone's stool. And there we, let's say 200 species mentioned on there, uh, or 200 genera to be more exact. And we may only know a bit of information about 20 or 30 of those species and almost nothing about a hundred of those species to give some perspective on that. But, you know, again, you skip back 20 years ago and we knew something about five <laughs> species of bacteria. So we're learning, we're certainly getting there. And I think we know enough now that we know that, that one, ecosystem composition is important. And two, we know how to shift certain populations. But every year we learn more and every year we're seeing how, how vital this, this ecosystem is. As I said, from, from before, we were looking at mostly around, you know, immune system function and whether it's related to gut diseases or not, and a bit of a nutritional status, but we now know that it plays a huge role in your metabolism in terms of how well you be able to lose weight or how easily you pick up weight, your mood. You know, we can change your brain chemistry by changing your, your gut ecosystem. You know, and we can even, newer conditions that you never would have thought of related to, to changes in, in the microbiome, like high blood pressure. We now know that we can take a essentially a, a poo transplant from someone with, with high blood pressure and give that, well, in this case, we're looking at animals. We can give that, you know, that rat a poo transplant from that person with high blood pressure and that rat will get high blood pressure just from that poo transplant. Yeah. And, and Alzheimer's. There's even stuff that we can take poo from people with Alzheimer's and give it to rats and those rats will develop Alzheimer's lesions in the brain and behaviors. Uh, you know, so it, it's really a, an amazing area of research currently. And I think it just promises so much in terms of the chronic Western diseases that we're, we see in, in the UK and Australia and North America that you know, plague our populations. It's like this, 
so much of a microbiome underlying cause, I would argue, for those conditions. And that's what we've been teasing out the last you know, 15 years. Wow, it's fascinating. And so why would that be? So say, for example, you know, you mentioned that you transferred somebody with Alzheimer's or a rat with Alzheimer's, you know, passing that on to another rat. Is it because of the harmful bacteria in that micro, you know, microbiota of that other rat yeah. that's got Alzheimer's? Essentially, yes. It's an imbalanced ecosystem that is able to create the same kind of disease state that it was in the other host as well. And, and conversely, we're able to clear away like Alzheimer's, you know, plaques in the brain from doing a poo transplant from health, young, healthy rats that didn't have Alzheimer's, you know, and that's mind blowing too, that you can actually, you know, clear away the, the brain, you know, damage that we would have thought was relatively permanent by changing the gut microbiota. And we're still teasing it into the what species are doing what in that. But I think it's, it's such an exciting area. And there's even case reports of, you know, people with Alzheimer's disease who, who happen to take a, a fecal transplant for a different condition. Um, a life-threatening gut infection called Clostridium difficile infection. And then they no longer had Alzheimer's afterwards. You know, and it's just like, oh, yeah, we see it in rats. mind-blowing. But there's also some case studies in humans having the same kind of effect. It is totally mind-blowing. Um, and it is really, you know, we'd see, uh, so it's one way of looking at the ecosystem is that there are species that drive inflammation upwards and there's other species that decrease inflammation downwards in, in your system. So when the balance is, is right, you end up having these anti-inflammatory compounds produced by these gut microbes, which decrease inflammation, not just in the gut, but everywhere, even in the brain. Yet when the balance is, is wrong, we actually have these pro-inflammatory species releasing compounds, which actually cause neurological damage and inflammation in the brain, as well as inflammation elsewhere too. And this is why we're seeing that, you know, the the role of, of an imbalanced gut ecosystem for things from you know, Alzheimer's disease and anxiety to depression, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, metabolic syndrome, obesity, you know, even osteoporosis is being linked to altered gut flora now. It, it's, yeah, and I think it's really got to do with that anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory balance. Mm, fascinating. So how would it work in terms of with humans? That's kind of rat models they've done. Is it, would it be a case of, um, I'm assuming they don't do transplants in humans or, or how would it work with humans? They're starting to. Oh, <laughs> they are. wow. Yeah. yeah, there are researcher groups doing fecal transplants, looking at things like depression, anxiety, obesity. Yeah, and this is very new. So I'd say just watch the literature of the next five years, and there's going to be a lot of papers published looking at this. I remember having a chat with some Israeli researchers recently, and they're doing fecal transplants for fibromyalgia patients. Mm. You know, um, I think expecting positive results. <laughs> the, the animal studies are often just more about proving causation. Yeah, because people often go, okay, oh, well, just because people with this disease have this kind of imbalanced ecosystem doesn't mean this causes that. And it's true, it may not. But then if we're able to take that, you know, essentially do a, a fecal transplant from and create the disease in the other model, we can we should essentially show causation. And once we have that, then we can start doing more, you know, human studies about how we can alter that ecosystem for the better. And yes, even doing fecal transplants. And I do think that, you know, essentially pretty will be the medicine of the future. <laughs> as long as we can have maintain some, you know, good healthy microbiota donors to to have. Because there's just not that many of us in, in Western nations anymore that actually have, I would say, a really healthy, ro robust, diverse, um, well-balanced ecosystem because of just the way things have gone with in, in Western societies with, you know, C-section births and formula feeding and antibiotic use and proton pump inhibitor use and natural anti-inflammatory use and alcohol, junk food, you know, high levels of stress, little time in nature, less sleep than is ideal. You combine that all together as, as we just have, end up having this major loss of diversity and, and ecosystem health amongst Westerners. So there's a smaller pool to choose from from an ideal donor perspective, but there's still obviously people within that broader populace who are, are you know, have maybe had a fortunate early childhood where they were born vaginally and breastfed and, and not given lots of antibiotics that they have a, a more robust and diverse ecosystem that we can <laughs> use to, to repopulate the, the broader human population. So their poo is going to be like gold. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do recall meeting the, a, a partner of one of my patients years ago who was born in um, Denmark. He had home birth, which we know is associated with better 
bacterial composition than a hospital birth. Breastfed, you know, exclusively for six months and for, for I think probably two years all up. Never, he was in his forties, never a course of antibiotics his entire life. Never, not one. And he ate really well and he was healthy and fit and had a good mental state. And I'm like, you're, you're, you're that unicorn. It's like your, your poo is immensely valuable. You don't know it yet, but people like you are such a rarity, you know, um, who actually, we know that they essentially have the full gamut of bacteria that were gifted down the family line, you know, cause I think that's the other aspect that we don't necessarily consider too, that we have this sort of, you know, this species that this diversity gets passed down. And once we, essentially cause extinction level events, we have less diversity to pass on. So each generation of Westerner gets less and less diverse ecosystem than the one before that. So it's, it's just such a rarity to have those that have a full gamut of, of microbes still there. And that, and that's why those researchers going out to, you know, the Amazonian rainforest and collecting their poo samples from, from natives in that area and collecting poo samples from hunter gathered tribes in Africa to go, okay, well, these are intact ecosystems. We need to really preserve them. So we have an idea of what the human ecosystem is supposed to look like because, you know, we're, we're we've lost so much of that in Western nations and, and, and other nations that are, that are developing following that sort of Western healthcare model and Western levels of hygiene, et cetera, and food. <laughs> we tend to lose the diversity in their ecosystems as well. And it just seems to be getting worse every year, doesn't it? Yes. So can it be replenished? Somebody has got a gut that they've had a few courses of antibiotics and can can they get ever get back to sort of near where their gut was when they were born if they were born vaginally and breastfed etc no <laughs> not not Damn. i mean yeah to give a very simple answer to that one is not a simple process yeah. I mean, there was a paper published in a, a great UK journal, Gut, you know, one of my favorite gastroenterology journals a few a few years ago. And they found that a single course of antibiotics in this paper, nine species of bacteria went extinct in this person's oh, gut. Oh, wow. Nine permanently gone from that single course. And you think, oh man, there's people who take two courses a year. And that's pretty standard. Little than people who might take five or 10 a year, you know, what impact that might have. Essentially with our current generation of, of probiotics that we have, no, we can't re-inoculate or replenish that. Now, that's not to say, and essentially we're stuck with fecal transplants or probably breast milk too. No one's researched this yet, but we do get a, a, a wide gamut of, of different microbes in breast milk that in theory should be able to have the same kind of colonizing effect as what we get with a, a fecal transplant, but again, not yet researched. Yeah, so, and, and I do think that in, in five or 10 years time, there will be probiotic supplements that are kind of, are essentially poo transplants without the poo, <laughs> which make it far more palatable for most of us to deal with to go, okay, well, yeah, we're just taking a microbe supplement that's really diverse that might be able to replenish those species. And I'm also going to take a step further than that. I think in another decade beyond that, there'll be fecal banks where when you're a child, your poo will be stored away. And then if you have to take a course of antibiotics for a needed indication, like a life-threatening or limb-threatening infection, you take it and then you essentially self re-inoculate with your own poo. And that will bring all those microbes back. But again, I think that's a little bit further ahead in the future, but it will happen. But I think the next generation probiotics that will be much more diverse may have a chance of helping with that loss of diversity. We'll have to kind of wait and see for sure as those things become developed in research and see whether they have great colonization capacity or not, because that's certainly something that is quite limited with our current generation probiotics that are essentially based around primarily lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. We know they have from, you know, 40, 50 years of research on these, these tools have very limited capacity to permanently colonize or stay in your gut. So yes, they're there when you take them, but two weeks after you stop that probiotic supplement, they're gone. And what we're hoping for is that next generation probiotic supplements might actually be able to colonize and stay for forever or at least a much longer period of time than one or two weeks. So interesting. Now, so if somebody wanted to have a look at their microbiome or, you know, to see what yeah. kind of bacteria, what they might be lacking or, and what, what sort of gut testing should they be looking at? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, it's sort of going to get a little bit technical. There's there's three different options of of stool tests. I would say there's PCR tests. There's another technology called 16S rRNA, and then there's shotgun metagenomic sequencing test. And I should say there's a fourth. There's, there's culturing, and culturing is the old style where we take a sample of poo and we'd wipe it on some you know our petri dish and we'd look to see what would grow. And that's something you know science has been doing since the late 1800s. But we've recently worked out over the last 20 years that it's 
particularly poor way of assessing what's in the gut because most species in the gut do not grow in petri dishes so that it, you don't get a clear a picture of what's going on. But in term, what I've loved seeing in the last decade is how the technology to assess the microbiome has really become av- available and, and cost-effective too. And that I still recall 15 years ago, patients paying $800 for a test that would tell them about 12 species of bacteria in their gut. And now there's places you can have around $100 mark and see all the different species of bacteria that are there. And those are tests that are often using a technology called 16S rRNA. Like it's a lab in the, in the UK called Biomsite, and I have no affiliation with, with Biomsite. But they do 16S rRNA. It's a, you know, in, relatively inexpensive test, and you get this beautiful snapshot of the entirety of the ecosystem, you know, and those are the kind of tests that give me that, that beautiful snapshot of, the, of its entirety. And it can tell us what's, di- how diverse that ecosystem is and the spread of the species, how many species are present. Those are the tests that I really like. I think the, the PCR tests often don't tell us those things. <laughs> they don't tell us what diversity, you know, they might make a hypothesis around it and they don't tell us what all the species that are present because they're only testing for certain ones that are there and, and to far limited degree and, and shotgun tests. It's just a, a particular technique of looking at, at DNA. So it sounds like shotgun. Can we break it into small little pieces like shotgun pellets, I suppose, is where the idea came from. They're fantastic too, but they are often a notch higher up in, in cost. They might be, you know, two or three times as much as a 16S RNA test. Okay, thank you for explaining that. Yeah, we'll pop some details in, in the show notes about those, but it's always better to, in terms of interpretation of these test results, to do that via a practitioner anyways, isn't it? Yeah, I would highly recommend that because there are, there's a lot there. <laughs> and <laughs> like gobbledygook. Yeah, for most, and even for a lot of practitioners, it is too, to be honest. Um, and yeah, so I think it's working with, with a practitioner who's familiar with the sort of the new world of the microbiome versus what was, we knew just 20 years ago and familiar with that testing technology and with tools to use to, to shift that ecosystem are the ones to work with because you can really, I can say as a clinician who's been working on microbiota modification for, for 20 years, you can achieve a tremendous amount of change in a wide range of different disease states by improving the health of that ecosystem. But that's much easier to do with, with guidance from people who, who know how to interpret that test and can help you get the best out of your food choices and supplemental choices. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now let's move on to probiotics. So, you know, a lot of people do know what probiotics are in terms of, you know, they know it, you know, after a course of antibiotics to replenish the gut bacteria. And some quite often doctors will say, oh, you know, go and get some probiotics. So, you know, they'll pop off to the shop and just get whichever brands on on offer. Um, But they do a lot more than this. Can you explain to us what probiotics are and how they work? Yeah, and I would say they probably don't do that bit well. (laughs) Either they they call recall anything after antibiotics. No, they don't actually. But they can help if taken alongside the right probiotic when taken alongside antibiotics, can reduce the risk of, of diarrhea and, and gut side effects. It can reduce the degree of damage caused and can hasten the restoration of the gut ecosystem. And conversely, the, the wrong probiotic given alongside antibiotics, it, it, some research shows can actually slow down the rate of regeneration of the, the normal gut ecosystem post-antibiotics. So I think it, this is really probably comes back to using the right strain for that task, and maybe that's a good place to start. You know, probiotics are defined as, as live microbes that when administered in adequate amounts cause health benefits. That's the strict definition that we all kind of follow from a science perspective. And What's important when we're looking at probiotics is we, we now know that within any given species, and you mentioned lactose rhamnosus before, species of bacteria, um, but there are thousands of different strains. And I think the good way of looking at this is looking at it in, in the analogy of dogs. You know, all dogs are the same species, but we can have a, you know, Cavalier King Charles, and we can have a Chihuahua, we can have Irish Wolfhound, German Shepherd. They're different. <laughs> Even though they're the same species, they have different traits and different personality traits and physical traits. When it comes to bacterial strains, we may not look physically different, but their their characteristics or traits can be dramatically different, even within the same species. And so there will be some, like Lactosaurinosis GG, for example, is one of those strains we can use alongside antibiotics to reduce the risk of, of side effects and I think to hasten the restoration of a healthy gut ecosystem. But it doesn't work to prevent urinary tract infections. But, and, however, another strain, Lactulus rhamnosus GR1, does work to protect against urinary tract infections. 
You know, so even though they're within the same species, they're different strains within that grouping, which means they can have different effects. And I think that's important to note. But I think also important to note is, is that as we've done more research over the last mostly 20 years, we've seen that probiotics aren't just about, you know, going into your gut after a course of antibiotics, we now know that probiotics can have specific therapeutic effects, like they can be anti-inflammatory, they can slow down your gut transit time or speed up your gut transit time, they can help heal up a damaged gut or a leaky gut, they can you know, change how your immune system works by ramping up the arm of your immune system that protects against viral infections or bacterial infections, and then toning down that arm of the immune system that is involved with allergies or even, I would argue, autoimmunity as well. You know, there's some strains that are particularly good at, at helping reduce levels of bad bacteria in the gut or, or fungal, bad, like candida in the gut and other strains that don't have that capacity. And w- since we've been able to tease these things out more so, we're now seeing that probiotics, there's a whole, whole huge range of, of uses of probiotics that weren't on our radar you know, 15, 20 years ago, where we were mostly talking about yeah, antibiotics. Yes, there's some stuff with the irritable bowel syndrome or gut infections, constipation. Those are the kind of things we use probiotics for 20, 30, 40 years ago. Boom, you fast forward now, it's like, oh, we can use, there's cl- human clinical trials using probiotics to treat cervical dysplasia, to prevent mastitis, for prevention of diabetes during pregnancy, obesity after pregnancy, anxiety, depression, res- to prevent respiratory tract infections, to prevent urinary tract infections that I kind of alluded to before, to treat type 2 diabetes, to improve, improve blood sugar control and metabolic syndrome, obesity, food allergies, hay fever, asthma. You know, we have probiotics that work in all those different range of conditions. Now, because we've kind of worked out that, okay, well, some of these ones that have these broad-acting anti-inflammatory effects might work on a few of these other conditions that are far, go far beyond the sort of limited gut reseeding that we once used probiotics for, which, uh, as I said, they're not even particularly good for that. <laughs> In the end, they've got a range of other things they can be used for, even like some recent research on osteoporosis, where you're like, you know, bone loss associated with aging. You would not have thought of probiotics being helpful for that even 10 years ago. But there is, there's a clinical trial showing a strain of lactose reuteri. It's got a weird name of 6475. That's its strain name, but it actually helps reduce bone loss in, in, in women with osteoporosis. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, it's the amount of research coming out is amazing. Yes, and hard, much harder to keep up to these days. <laughs> I must say, as someone that when I started off, I could read every single study published on probiotics that came out for the first number of years and all the backlog too. And that's not the case now because now there's like, I think it's 5,000 studies of publishing a year or something like that. It's, it's outrageous the amount of information coming out now. Wow, that's why we need the probiotic advisor website. It does make it easier. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Because as you say, there's you know probably a lot of practitioners out there as well that might not be familiar with all the things that you're talking about today in terms of different strains. No, because I think we, we're often stuck in that old paradigm of you know just using them if you, you do maybe you do stool test and it shows you low in lactobacilli take some lactobacilli you know or you know you take a horse antibiotics and take take a probiotic you know so I, and i think that's really shifted uh, what i'd say a, a new paradigm of probiotic use where we're we're using them similar to we might use herbal medicines for a specific action you know so sort of like oh hey this probiotic is anti-inflammatory this one helps with anxiety this one helps with cognitive function this one helps with type 2 diabetes and yes we're still doing the the other things behind the scenes like if you're type 2 diabetes you've got to exercise more and you have to eat better and you know things like that too but you know the probiotics will work as a, a nice band-aid in the shorter term while we try to get people to work on the underlying drivers of their different disease states mm-hmm. now why does some probiotics need to be kept in the fridge whereas others are heat stable and is one type better than the other no it, it's just kind of the different traits and qualities that they have and and i would say that essentially from the probably mid 90s onwards when they started looking at, at coming up with new probiotic strains for the marketplace, they, they would essentially put potential probiotic strains through an obstacle course. And that obstacle course was, okay, do you tolerate stomach acid? Do you tolerate bile from your liver? Do you attach to the gut? Do you produce any antimicrobial compounds? And do those compounds work against good bacteria or do they work against pathog- you know, bad bacteria? Does and and what's what's the shelf life? You know, can you live at room temperature or, or not? Then you know, I remember reading one of the, the probably the first sort of modern probiotic strain is one called Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, and GG stands for the, the the two researchers who isolated this one, Golden and Gorbach, and it was, came from the gut of a healthy Swedish person from memory. Um, but there was there was like over a hundred I think strains to start with, and this is the one that came through the obstacle course and ticked all the boxes, including shelf life. 
at room temperature. And since then, a number of probiotic strains have come through a similar process of, okay, we might start off with a, you know, isolate a hundred from someone else's gut or from a fermented food, for example, we put it through the obstacle course and one or two survive, you know, tick all the boxes, get the gold medal in the end, and they have good shelf stability and they can live at room temperature and there's no law, or they can be at room temperature without any loss of viability. But there are other strains that don't have that, but they might have a lot of other positive characteristics. So they might go, okay, well, this one isn't ideal from a, a, you know, storage perspective, but it has lots of other good traits. So we'll still use it as a probiotic supplement, but we'll make sure it's it's actually shipped with refrigeration to maintain viability at that time. So we can't necessarily say, you know, ones that, that have refrigeration are, are, are better or worse than the ones that are not. They just have different strengths, I suppose, in terms of stability, one of the characteristics we look at, but arguably less so from a therapeutic perspective, more so just to do with ease of use and ease of commercial transport, et cetera. Okay. Makes sense. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM. Still to come, I talk to Dr. Horilak about which strains of probiotics are best for specific conditions, how food sources of probiotics compare to the supplemental form, and why prebiotics are just as important for your health. Are you or a loved one struggling with health issues? Would you like to change career and become a natural therapist? CNM offers a wide range of short courses and diploma training, both online and in class. Contact us today for a limited time to save 10% on short courses using the code podcast. Visit www.cnmpodcast.com. Now, can you explain the strengths and what CFU means? So if somebody's looking at the bottle, um, you know, because that relates to the strength and are the more billions, the better. You would get that idea. You read the blog. <laughs> Most bloggers <laughs> your sites would say that, like, oh, yes, the more the better. But the research doesn't say that with any sort of consistent message at all. Now, CFU stands for colony forming units. So one bacteria is one CFU. And just with bacteria, they can multiply up. So that's why we call it, it can make a colony. You know, that one bacteria can grow into a colony of bacteria. So hence the name. I mean, there is a minimum dose for the most part. Now, there is a minimum dose that we're often looking at when it comes to probiotic supplements, and that's 1 billion or 10 to the 9 CFU. And I would say there's this pretty general consensus from a research perspective that when probiotics are used at a dose below that point, it's probably, for, for many strains, is, is, it is inadequate, and we may not get a sufficient amount of bacteria to have a therapeutic effect, whereas anything above that point seems to be efficacious. What isn't clear is that there's any necessary advantage to giving, you know, 100 billion over 1 billion. You know, in some conditions, for some strains, I would argue that there is, but I would say that you, that's not a, a general argument that goes across because you'll find studies that show that actually sometimes the lower dose is more effective than the higher dose in the study where they use three different doses. And there's other strains that we know that work at a much lower dose, like the lactose reutri DSM17938. Catchy name, I know. Uh, we know that one works at 100 million bacteria, so 10 to the 8. So 10 times less than other probiotic strains. It has a lot of studies showing it works at that dose. So we don't need to give any more than that to get a therapeutic effect. Now, for certain conditions, there might be advantage in giving more of that strain. But to give some context here, looking at a study, looking at antibiotic use, and we know that, the, that we can give 100 million bacteria twice daily, and we can prevent that population from developing antibiotic-associated diarrhea and side effects. Yet there can be another study looking at the same kind of population of older adults receiving a course of antibiotics that took you know 60 billion CFU of four different strains of bacteria, and they had no impact on decreasing antibiotic-associated side effects at all, none. You know, so showing even though there's 300 times the dose and there was, you know, four strains versus one strain, the one strain at lower dose worked because it had the qualities and traits required to be helpful for that situation versus those four strains did not, and so therefore could not be helpful. So it's one thing that we look at is making sure there's a minimum required dosage, which I put is about 1 billion CFU or 10 to 9 CFU, but it's not the only thing we need to look at when it comes to probiotic supplements. The Having the strain designations there on the label is more important, and the having those strains having the right attributes and actions to help with the condition you're wanting help with is more important. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's going to be dependent on the person and the condition and 
and all of those factors as well. Yeah, and this is where it starts getting more complex. Yeah, because you know, be different potentially different probiotic strains that we use for anxiety than there will be for you know high cholesterol, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you able to give us some examples of particular conditions where specific strains are recommended? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think osteoporosis, like I mentioned before, it's it's lactose reuteri six four seven five is a strain with good research in that area. Depression. There's been some good research with the combination of lactobacillus acidophilus strain LA5 and bifidobacterium lactis strain BB12. Um, and that's osteoarthritis. There's some research on lactobacillus cassii strain Sharota. Type 2 diabetes, it's the same two strains that were helpful for depression, actually. It's the lactobacillus acidophilus strain LA5 and the bifidobacterium lactis strain BB12 has got some good research for type 2 diabetes. And maybe to finish off constipation, that's a common condition they don't often talk about, but it's really common. Um, and I treat a lot of patients with constipation. And I think there's two strains that I've had good research studies on and I've seen work well in, in a lot of people over the years. And that, again, is lactobacillus reutri DSM17938. That's a strain that I mentioned before that's also helpful for antibiotic-associated side effects. And then bifidobacterium lactis strain HN019 also helpful for speeding up transit time and helping with constipation to give a few. Wow, thank you very much. Yes, it's, um, yeah, how do you remember all these names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 22 years of looking at them, actually. Yes, oh, yes, yeah. So, yeah, you definitely need to to look at the research before taking probiotics willy-nilly, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, and there was a research study that came out of Israel a few years back that I think, to me, illustrated this point very well. And this is a study where they they gave some a probiotic alongside antibiotics and afterwards, and they looked to see what impact it had on the, the microbiota of these people in terms of how did it restore after antibiotics? Did it, did it restore it better? And it turns out that with this particular probiotic the stru- combination they used, it was an Israeli supplement, actually slowed the restoration and you could argue caused harm to the gut ecosystem with its use. You know, um, so it's like, oh, look at that. So you really want to be careful with what probiotics you use, not choosing some, with some random ones. Use the ones that have got researched showing that they're helpful for that condition at hand because otherwise you might get that rare situation because it turns out that the lactobacillus that was in this specific Israeli supplement produced a compound that was selectively active against your good bacteria in your colon that were trying to regrow. So because they were taking this supplement, it actually slowed the growth of these good bacteria and slowed their return. And it's like, okay, well, that means that supplement is useless for that task and that supplement might be useful for something else, but not for that, that's for sure. But there'll be other strains that we know have got good research alongside antibiotics that we can use in that situation without having to worry about it. So I think, yeah, I've got some concerns about experimenting too much with, with random probiotics, hoping they will work when we, these, this day and age, we can, we don't need to experiment for very often. We can actually use evidence to inform our decisions and, and to tell us which probiotics to take for different conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think the issue is, um, you know, for decent probiotics, they are like they are quite expensive sometimes, and I think people just go and pick the cheapest one quite often in the local health yeah. shop, and not you know just thinking that they all do the same yeah. thing. And I think that's the issue. Very much the case, and I think it's the thing that we know that the reason these things are expensive is because research costs money. <laughs> so, Definitely, so the, the people that have done that. Okay, let's take two hundred strains, put them through an obstacle course, and we get the, the one or two that comes at the end, and then they might do some animal studies, and then they might do some human clinical trials on that before it even hits the marketplace. You know, so that's like a lot of money went into that. And not surprisingly, they want to recoup some of that money when they sell that off versus someone else. And just go, I'm just going to grab some random black bacilli that I found as some sauerkraut, <laughs> put this into a supplement form and start selling it super cheap. Who doesn't do any of the background research? You, you, you kind of, when it comes to probiotics, I think you really get, you, you get what you pay for. Um, or at least you know what you're getting when you, when you pay more because you, you should be getting the research that, that shows that these strains have got the attributes and the traits that you're wanting. Mm-hmm. It's like any supplement, isn't it? You know, you buy, you know, with minerals and vitamins, it's the same thing. You're getting a more bioavailable, absorbable form, whereas the cheaper ones tend to be, you know, uh, cheaper forms of the minerals and, and vitamins. Yeah, yeah, that's often the case, very much so. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there are some diff- different schools of thought about the best time to take probiotics. Some indicate before food, whereas others stay after food. What are your recommendations? I think the research has become pretty clear on this over, the, again, the last 20 years, because I think I was even taught to take it away from food <clears throat> as part of my naturopathic training. But we now know that you're, you get better survival through the stomach, which is what you want. You want these bacteria to be alive when they get out of the stomach at the far, into your small intestine. We get better survival with the meal. And the bigger your meal is, the better your survival of the bacteria are. So I always tell my patients to do it, you know, either just before a meal or midway through a meal or just right following a meal, but not on an empty stomach. We, we now know that the pH uh, the acidity of your stomach is far, far greater when your stomach is empty. You know, it's like maybe page of two, two and a half when your stomach is empty, but that goes up towards neutral. It's more around four, four and a half when you've got a, a meal in there. And research even seems to show that, that meals with, with higher dairy content or higher grain content even, I think, buffer the pH even more. So you get better survival again with those, those meals. But in general, just think of, okay, the bigger the meal, the, um, better survival, the probiotics. Well, strains will there will be to the stomach. So lunch and dinner, preferably. Yeah. And are there any safety issues to be aware of? I mean, are probiotics safe for babies, children, pregnant women, and those on medication? And can they be taken long term? Long term, yes. And I think the the safety profile in general is, is is pretty exceptional. Now there are some you know occasional cases what's called bacteremia where bacteria gets into the bloodstream and, and causes a, an infection and that's usually in people that are in hospital on you know near extremely unwell to begin with and i think they're often severely immunocompromised where the immune system just doesn't can't deal with things too much and they get that, that sort of bacterial introduction and it comes through and it's problematic so i think there are certain little pockets of populations that we're more cautious around and i certainly have, have no concerns around you know infants greater than six months of age below six months of age when they're breastfed i prefer to work via them the mom and give the probiotic to the mom and then it comes out through the breast milk through that process if they're formula fed then i'm totally happy giving it straight to to little infants in that instance and pregnant women yeah i mean there's some good research on probiotics for um prevention of postpartum obesity so that's good and and for um oh gosh what is it racking my brain now and and prevention of mastitis for sure and gestational diabetes that's what it was yeah prevention of gestational diabetes you know so there's a few good reasons uh, as well as allergies in, in your offspring so there's research showing that the right strain during pregnancy and and following birth can actually prevent eczema and you know allergic disease developing in your offspring so there's a few good reasons to use it during pregnancy now particular foods also contain sources of probiotics, things like yogurts, kefir, and fermented foods. How do food sources compare to the supplemental form of probiotics? Yeah. From a, like, a strict researcher perspective, we'd actually separate those out. So we've got probiotics that are these really well-defined, well-characterized living microbes that we know have th- therapeutic effects when consumed. And then we have you know, foods that contain active microbes. With, that aren't so well characterized. And this would be, you know, tr- your traditional yogurts, your, your kefirs, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi, all those things would fit into that category. And they're generally not considered from a researcher perspective to be, to be probiotics because they don't meet sort of the, I suppose the strictest definition of, of having a definitive health. The strains contained in that fermentation are, have specific health benefits because they're, they're wild ferments. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I had, I had sauerkraut and kimchi for lunch and breakfast today, as I do most days, and drank kombucha. I loved eating my fermented foods and getting exposed to a wide range of microbes, but I'm not expecting them to be therapeutic in the same way that I am with a, a supplement. So from a researcher perspective, we like separating those things out of going, this is a you know, wild mixture of stuff. And, you know, in my kombucha here, we'll have different microbes than yours will in your house. And my sauerkraut will have different ones. And even the strains of a bacteria in my yogurt will be, the species will be the same, but it'll be different strains and then you know, yogurts in a range of parts of the world. And because of those differences, we can't necessarily expect to get the exact same sort of therapeutic effects. Whereas when using, you know, lactose rhinosis GG, that one strain, it might have a different brand in different parts of the world, but saying that same strain, we, we've got that. We know exactly what we're getting. We know what the traits and qualities of that are. Yes, and thanks for clarifying that. You can make yogurt with that spiked with 
with a well-characterized probiotic strain. And then that becomes a, a probiotic yogurt or what I would call medicinal yogurt. But the normal microbes that are just making fermenting milk to become this sort of thick stuff that we call yogurt are not therapeutic and they generally die in the stomach and small intestine. So they're not, you know, it's not a probiotic thing. It's just like, yeah, it's made milk taste better. And you know, we're getting some essentially dead bacterial bits when we ingest it, which is not a bad thing, but you can spike that. So there'll be brands of yogurts and I don't know the UK market particularly well from a yogurt perspective, but there are brands here in Australia and in North America where the, the manufacturers will go, yeah, we'll, we'll add our yogurt producing bacteria, but then we'll spike it with some therapeutic, well-characterized probiotic strains. And then we actually have uh, just a different way of taking those probiotics as a food source instead of as a um, you know powder or a capsule. Mm-hmm. And you can make your own at home, can't you? With them, um, there are companies that sell the probiotics that you can make it make your own yogurt. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is always worth double checking is that the probiotic strain that you're trying to grow can eat, find food and nourishment in the media you're trying to grow it in. So, to give you an example, there's certain lactobacilli or bifidobacteria that don't eat lactose, for example, which is milk sugar. So, if you try to grow it in milk, it won't grow. But those ones might eat the sugars found in soy milk, for example. Or you could, you know, add because uh, there's ways of being creative with this. So you could have your 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 milk cast milk as a media for even for that strain. But then you can put some special sugar in there that it does like, and then it will grow in that that media and still ferment it, but not actually eat the lactose in the milk. It's certainly a bit more complex. But it's essentially making sure that the probiotic strains that you're wanting to grow can eat what's in the meeting you wanted to grow in and it's not always as simple as what people make it out to be it is indeed indeed yes as as we're finding out today (laughs) um now let's talk about prebiotics can you explain what prebiotics are and why they're important yeah i think they are for me one of the most immensely useful tools in my clinical practice and probably the, the tools that have the biggest impact on changing the microbiota composition bar you know major changes in diet, but prebiotics are immense in in that capacity. So prebiotics are selectively fermented substrates that encourage the growth of one or limited number of beneficial species in the gut. A way of looking at this is, is let's say you've got a, a garden bed that's got a bunch of weeds and a, a, the, the maybe the broccoli you're trying to grow. Imagine if you could just like throw this fertilizer onto your garden bed, then only the broccoli could eat it and it couldn't be utilized by any of the weeds and the broccoli would grow it grow hugely and super quickly and shaded all those weeds so all the weeds would kind of die back and in the end you just had a bed that was full of broccoli that's kind of what prebiotics do is that they selectively nurture one or limited number of beneficial species who then take over more territory and change the environment in such that it's less conducive to the growth of bad bacteria or bad fungi too i would even argue so they're really shifting that ecosystem but it's the selectivity of fermentation that separates them from other things that are just fibers I'm a huge fan of fibers, and I think we should be eating a wide range of dietary fiber daily to, to feed a wide range of microbes in our gut. But what's different between just you know fibers and prebiotics is that selectivity of fermentation. So with prebiotics, it is you know it's just one or, or a couple of different species that are eating that, whereas fibers it might be dozens of different species. And you want both, but there'll be times where you're like, I want to be really targeted. You know, if I do a microbiome analysis and this patient is really low in bifidobacteria and really low in another species called Fecalobacterium, I go, okay, oh, well I can give a specific prebiotic supplement that will target both those species and they'll go up. And yes, I'll probably make some other dietary suggestions to you know, nurture a wide range of species, but I might use you know, inulin or oligofructose to, to feed their, their fecalobacterium and bifidobacterium. And then lo and behold, four weeks later or six weeks later, we can do another a test and you go, oh, look, those species have gone up very clearly from this intervention. Yeah. So for me, they're, they're mentally helpful because they can help rebalance that ecosystem by, by feeding up those anti-inflammatory gut healing species. And as a consequence of that, we get reductions generally of more pathogenic or harmful pro-inflammatory species. So I love their capacity to rebalance things. Yeah. So it's not even just feeding up good guys. It's actually often lowering levels of bad bacteria too. Not all prebiotics are equally good at that latter aspect of lowering levels of, of bad guys, but some certainly are. Um, and for me, that's why they're kind of first-line treatment, because we've got that capacity to optimize the ecosystem you know, with, without the risk of collateral damage we might have with, obviously, antibiotics. Or um, I'd even argue some herbal antimicrobials can cause collateral damage to the gut, too, when we just 
I just love the win-win situation we get with the prebiotics. Plus, compliance-wise, it's often good because they taste like sugar. So they're generally pretty easy to take, even for people who you know yeah, have trouble with, with foul-tasting things. This isn't one of them. It's, as a naturopath, I prescribe lots of foul-tasting things to my patients. But this is a category of stuff that's generally it's either bland and nothing or actually sweet and quite pleasant to take. You know, And, and I would say there's probably three prebiotics that are the most well-researched and most well-known and, and available, and that's you know, fructo oligosaccharides, which are things like inulin or oligofructose. Um, there's galacto oligosaccharides, and then there is lactulose. And lactulose is a weird, one of those weird ones that's, it's actually everywhere. Every single chemist or drugstore has got lactulose in it. And in large doses, it works as a laxative, but it turns out in low doses, it works as a prebiotic and a selective fertilizer for a good bacteria. It's probably just one sixth the dose that's used as a laxative. Mm-hmm. And all those would come in supplemental form, like in granules or? Yeah, often with the fruct oligosaccharides, it's typically a powder, galacto oligosaccharides, powder, lactulose, usually liquid, but you can in some circumstances buy powder too, but it's much more expensive. The liquid is is quite inexpensive. And how would one take those? Would it be alongside the probiotic or separately? Well, if you're trying to, there's something called a, a symbiotic effect. A symbiotic is where Often you're trying to take a prebiotic at the same time as a specific probiotic to encourage its growth in the gut after you ingest it. And that, if that's what you're going for, then yes, you could take it at the same time, assuming you've done your research and that the probiotic you take can consume that exact prebiotic you're taking. It's not always that straightforward. But typically what you're trying to do with the prebiotic is change your, your gut ecosystem for the better. So, you know, it doesn't matter when you take that in regards to the probiotic. It doesn't matter when you take it with reference to food because it's going to reach the colon or large intestine in its own way at any time. So, so you don't need to worry about that aspect of things. Often the, the recommended approach that I, I use is start low and go slow. So, you know, let's say the minimum therapeutic dose of inulin, we know that one of the types of fructosaccharides is one teaspoon or three grams per day. That's a typical kind of dose for a kid or, or, or minimum dose for an adult. But we often don't start at that dose. We might start with a quarter teaspoon for the first week, then half a teaspoon for next week and, you know, and slowly build up. And this depends a bit on how well your gut's working that. If your gut is working really well and you ingest this prebiotic, you'll probably just get a bit more flatus. That's it. Often less smelly flatus, just more of it. But if your gut's not working well, you can get bloating and distension and pain associated with, with prebiotic ingestion. So it's always worthwhile. One, I think there's benefits of doing this with the practitioner, but you can experiment with them. Um, it's just doing it slowly and building the dose, you know, uh, upwards to get that ther- minimum therapeutic dose and not just going, going, okay, well, these three prebiotics are all great. I'm just going to start taking all three right now. I have had the odd workshop just do that. <laughs> <laughs> and they were complaining of, you know, bloating and discomfort and a tremendous amount of flatulence as a consequence of that, which they put up with for a few weeks to the gut normalized and, and, and evolved to deal with that. And, that. and that's what generally is occurring is that we're feeding different species up and then they're producing more gas, but we have other species in your gut who deal with that gas, but they take a while for their populations to increase. So we, we can help that ecosystem adapt by moving slowly and increasing the dose you know, every sort of five to seven days. Mm-hmm. And again, would you, you able to take those fairly long-term or is it sort of a, in sort of short spurts? No, definitely long, long-term. And there's some great research on prebiotics. We, we know they often will in, improve your immune response. You get less respiratory tract infections when you take them. They improve your absorption of calcium and probably magnesium. Yeah, so that there are long-term health attributes, but, uh, gains from, from their, their continual use, as well as their, you know, um, shifting of the ecosystem perspective. So, you know, I, I, I take prebiotics daily and have for, for years, whereas I only take probiotics, interestingly enough, when I have something I need it helpful that, with, which could be, you know, vi- if my little one comes home from school or from care with viral gastroenteritis, well, Hey, I'm going to take a probiotic to help reduce my chance of getting it in short duration or travelist diarrhea. Yes, I'll take one. You know, there'll be certain things I'm taking it for. Whereas prebiotics are part of my daily regime to, to optimize my gut ecosystem moving forward. So I think they're definitely great long term. And in terms of just making sure I cover the dosages for all those ones, all, I mean, lactulose one teaspoon is the minimum therapeutic dose. And with galacto oligosaccharides or GOS, again, it's around three grams is a minimum therapeutic dose. So you can kind of hover along those, those lower levels of dosages and have less chance of, of gas, you know, related side effects. 
long term. But we do know in this case, there is often a, a dose response when it comes to the degree of change to the ecosystem that if we take a higher dose of lactulose, for example, we will have a, a more um, substantial change in ecosystem composition than a, than one teaspoon if we took you know six teaspoons. So there'll be occasional patient we work up to a higher higher dose to get a, a bigger change, but that will depend on what the ecosystem looks like and how we're trying to to adjust it. But I think just in terms of um, playing around with it, you can stick with the lower doses and, and get the, the health benefits that we've been talking about in terms of microbiota optimization. Mm-hmm. And just starting with one um, and then maybe <laughs> introducing another one? Yes, yeah. Or would you stop that one and then start another one? No, there'll be times where I'm giving two or three, occasionally four different prebiotics at the same time, depending on what we're trying to target with that ecosystem. So you can certainly do them, layer in, but I, I take them at the same time. But I do think it makes sense to layer it in. So you start off with one for a while, then go, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm stable on this one, then introduce the next one and slowly build up. And it, this really depends on how sensitive your guts are. I mean, these days, with my patients, they're really sensitive, so I have to go really slowly with them. But I recall 10, 15 years ago when my patient group was quite different and when I run workshops to just the general healthy public who just wants to get healthier, they can often just start with you know the one teaspoon dose to begin with, and that's fine. And then the next week they can put in the second prebiotic. The next week, you know, in three weeks from now, they can be taking all three prebiotics, no issue. But there'll be some more sensitive patients with gut issues that I work with that it's like, you know, it might take six months to get to that point in more, you know, sensitive folk. Yes, absolutely. Now, what there are also some food sources of prebiotics. Can you explain what those ones are? And does it work out? Is it the same in terms of the probiotic foods? You separate them out as well? No, in this case, we can very much use food sources to get our, our prebiotics. At least when it comes to the fructal oligosaccharides, we can find in a range of foods from asparagus, artichokes, Jerusalem artichokes, glow artichokes, garlic, onions, wheat and rye, all contain a decent amount of fructal oligosaccharides. In fact, there are some roots that are less consumed now, but probably were more so by our ancestors, like burdock root and dandelion root that are actually quite high in fruit oligosaccharides. We just don't consume them much anymore. So you can certainly do it. And there's no disadvantage to, to achieving your, your dose of FOSS from food sources versus a powder. In fact, I'd say there's more advantages from having it in a food source. It's just trying to make sure you consume daily or or almost daily, the right amount through your foods, that's fine and it works really well. So no issue there. Galactoligosaccharides are slightly trickier in that probably the only food source that gives you a good load of goss is legumes. Pretty much across the board, there's, there's less in things like red lentils have got less and you might find that like barlotti beans or lima beans, for example, or split peas have got sinfully more. And this is the reason why legumes are often seen as being, you know, flattest inducing because they are. <laughs> it's the it's the goss in legumes, which is indigestible sugar that selectively feeds your beneficial species as a consequence of their use. So yes, you get gas, but yes, you're feeding your good bacteria at that same time. It is a good thing. Yeah, we have to get used to flattest being actually good. And the more fiber and more prebiotics we consume, generally the more flattest that we're actually going to produce comparatively. But generally when we're eating more fibery things or, or prebiotics, the smell actually decreases. So while you might have an increase in volume, the stink factor actually goes down, which is good because <laughs> it's often um, that bit that's more problematic for many people. Yeah. So if it is smelly, that's more like, oh, that, that probably doesn't agree with you or something's going on there. Well, I mean, I think sometimes there can be a transition where you can go from that if you, you continue on that prebiotic for two or three weeks, the smell might be only for the first week. And then it sort of moves through. And that's kind of, we're changing the ecosystem dynamics a bit. And we have to allow the prebiotic to work, to be consumed by the good bacteria, to change the environment, to decrease the level of bacteria that are causing the stink. It's essentially, it's the microbes that are eating bile, microbes that are eating um, protein. They're called protein putrefiers that add most of the stink factor. And in general, prebiotics would reduce their populations over time. But some people that can happen more quickly, and some people it's more of a slower process. So people who to come to be complaining of, of really stinky flattest, we will look at reducing dietary f- factors that, that feed those species, but at the same time, we'll take prebiotics to 
ch- change that balance in, in more quickly from the other other kind of rate of going. Let's feed the good bacteria; they'll change the ecosystem dynamics and the, and the, the pH of the environment, so it's less conducive to the growth of these more um, the stinkifying microbes to to help deodorize the flatus in the end. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the foods that feed those? Um those microbes that are causing the smell? Well, it's often meat, actually. <laughs> it's uh, meat. That can be chicken, that can be beef. It doesn't really matter in that regard. It's the protein level that the, the hydrogen sulfide gas producers that make those sort of stinky compounds are often protein consumers, and they also eat bile. So generally, higher fat diets often lead to more stinky fattest too. But I would say even more than that, it's probably, because I don't think olive oil or avocados or nuts and seeds tend to have this end result, it tends to be saturated fat. So saturated fat we find in dairy foods, particularly, are good at feeding bad bacteria called bilophila wordsworthii and bilophila. Its name means bio-loving. And it just loves it when people eat dairy fat. Loves it because we produce a different type of bile in our liver to help digest that dairy fat, which is really high in sulfur. And then this, this microbilophila just eats that sulfur compound and creates hydrogen sulfide gas, which is what stinks up the flatus. So those are the, the things we kind of look at going, okay, well, let's shift your, your dynamic and have a lot more plant-based foods. It doesn't have to be all, all plant-based, but just more plant-based. Make sure there's fiber with each meal, not just like a chunk of steak with a couple of chips, but like a small bit of steak and, a, and salad and brown rice and, you know, a whole bunch of other foods to, to offset that. And we know that if we have enough fiber or prebiotics alongside the dose of, of a protein, we can actually limit that protein putrefaction and the production of hydrogen sulfide gas that occurs with an individual meal as well. Now, just to finish up, what's your parting advice on uh, probiotics, prebiotics and gut health? Anything for our listeners? Well, I mean, I think if we want to take care of that ecosystem the best we can is, is being cautious around the use of pharmaceuticals and using them when they're needed, but not you know, for viral infections, for example, we don't need antibiotics for viral infections, but they're still prescribed. Um, I think there's that, but I think the other aspect is, is choosing dietary strategies that nurture the widest range of microbes that we possibly can, particularly the anti-inflammatory, sort of gut healing ones. And that to me is predominantly plant-based, high fiber, wide diversity of different foodstuffs, you know, avoiding all sort of processed foods, going with whole foods all the time. And in choosing foods that contain those prebiotic compounds I mentioned before, you know, that's kind of the best way we, we best strategies we, we can have to optimize the ecosystem. And then we get all the health benefits that flow on from that, which are a myriad. I'd say there's just so many that we're still teasing out. Mm-hmm. Great advice. On the medication front, antibiotics, obviously, we know affects gut flora. How about other medications, things like paracetamol, ibuprofen, these types? Do they also alter your microbiome? Yeah. And and this is only really the last probably five, six years that they started looking at things besides antibiotics and the impact they have. So it's early days yet. And I think that list of, of medications that alter the gut ecosystem in negative ways is growing <laughs> and will continue to grow. But the ones that have got the best research now are things like proton pump inhibitors that are used for reflux. And they are so widely prescribed for for life for many of these people that take them. And we know that they have essentially antibiotic-like effects on the gut ecosystem. They really negatively impact diversity. You do get extinction-level events with with taking proton pump inhibitors. So they're definitely in that category. Um, Ibuprofen and other sort of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are also in the category of, of encouraging the growth of bad bacteria and lowering levels of beneficial species as well. Um, in fact, there's some research that suggests that's the way in which they cause gut bleeding is through the changing of the gut microbiome. And they actually change the ecosystems of the bacteria were able to cause the gut damage, um, which I think is fascinating because we know that ibuprofen and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories cause gut bleeding, but the recent research is suggesting it's doing that because of the dysbiosis, the negative changes to the ecosystem that they actually induce. Those are the ones, as well as things like chemotherapy, but I'll put chemotherapy in a bit of a different category because, you know, the times where it's obviously very much needed. So what we're trying to do in that situation is, you know, attenuate the, the changes as best we can and restore things the best we can afterwards. But I do think that things like proton pump inhibitors, NSAIDs, we, we know from looking at the research that they are overprescribed. They're taken by way too many people that don't actually get 
benefit from them. They just get the harm. So we just have to be really cautious around those ones and make sure that they're used when they're needed to be, but not used overly, which they are currently. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. It's been so insightful, Jason, and so fascinating. Where can our listeners find out more information about you and the work that you do? Ah, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to to chat with us. It's as I said, it's my passion. So I very much like sharing the information and getting people to implement changes to to change the microbiomes and essentially change the lives. That's the idea. You can find out more about me, I suppose, on my I do run some, some courses on my, by my probiotic advisor website. We've got the database, which is mostly for practitioners, but we do have some courses there too, just to teach people to look after the microbiome and how to treat different sorts of gastrointestinal conditions that they might be encountering um, as well. So that's probably a good part, part to look at. And I do practice as, as a clinician to work one-on-one on improving one's microbiomes and to improve one's health. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Dr. Horolak for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Dr. Horolak in the show notes on the podcast website at www.cnmpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about gut health, nutrition, naturopathy or herbal medicine, check out CNM's range of short online courses and diploma training on the CNM website at www.cnmpodcast.com naturopathy-uk.com we have a series of open events coming up in the next few months and you can find all the details on the events section of the website thanks so much for joining us today if you enjoyed the show make sure you subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes while you're there we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content 